0: We were going to call this series, Shiny Object Syndrome, for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Caitlin Chin. I work at CSAS, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Hi, welcome to CSAS's This Does Not Compute podcast. Today, I'm joined by Emily Chi and Jenny Liu at Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AAJC, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for civil society protections in the United States, particularly towards issues that affect the AAPI community. So I'm so excited to have them on the podcast. Just as a quick aside, I first became familiar with Advancing Justice, AAJC, back when I was at Brookings working on U.S. federal privacy legislation. So back in 2019 and 2020, my colleagues and I were doing a lot of outreach. We were having conversations with numerous companies, civil society, and advocacy groups about whether and how a privacy bill can incorporate civil rights language, especially given this growing recognition that Algorithms can build off training data sets of ways that reflect or even amplify existing societal biases. And civil rights groups like Advancing Justice, AAJC, were instrumental to this conversation. But of course, technology policy overlaps with civil and human rights in many different ways in addition to privacy. So including in the fields of misinformation and disinformation, facial recognition, and broadband access. So, I'd love to introduce Emily and Jenny now. Emily and Jenny, I was wondering if you could give us an overview of what you work on at Advancing Justice AAJC and how you became
1: involved in this field. Great. So, I can start. Thanks so much for having us, Caitlin. I'm Emily Chi. I'm the Director of TechTel Common Media Policy at Advancing Justice AAJC. I'd say my interest in tech policy and API advocacy started just because of who I am and how I grew up. Um, So I grew up in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, before it became the sexy tech capital and now kind of the trash can it is. But I saw firsthand as a child of a single mother household, a low income household, just how disparate the effects of tech were, right? We saw like the company changing, housing changing, the um, landscape and just restaurants, malls changing. But at the same time, we saw so many families not being able to partake in that wealth and the developments that were being made, and actually being oppressed and having their livelihoods destroyed because of it. So I learned pretty early on you know, tech is for better or for worse, a force that can change the world, and it's up to people like us to make a difference on how it's done. So I ended up working in tech actually for a few years. And you know it's not like they're these young people breaking things like um, we like to pretend they are, but it's really just people who are young and may not have the experiences of the communities that they're actually ultimately affecting. So I think it's really important for us to share our stories and share our experiences and make sure that they're embedded in the products and the features that are being rolled out because inevitably they'll make a difference on us, whether or not we have a voice. So that's how I got involved in the work. At AJC, our portfolio includes a ton of things. Like when you say tech policy, it really is just a huge, huge umbrella. We do everything from privacy, like you said, of our communities, making sure that any privacy rights and controls that people have are actually accessible in language understandable we've all seen those cookie notices where you can't do anything except accept cookies and if you're not an english speaker of course that's even more difficult you're being surveilled all the time and you don't even know how to control it even though tech companies claim you have the right we also work on the privacy of more vulnerable communities, such as immigrant communities who are being surveilled and forced to wear tracking devices at the border. Or maybe they're not even wearing a device, but they're being tracked without their knowledge. We've had instances from the MAMSA community with like Muslim prayer apps where the location is being tracked and shared with federal agencies without notice or consent. So that's like in the privacy bucket, but we do everything from facial recognition of our communities, how policing tech is being imposed, not just on our communities, but black and brown communities, which we know inevitably will affect all of us, including Asian Americans. We also do work on broadband access and the digital divide. So making sure that our most vulnerable communities, especially those with lower socioeconomic backgrounds and lower English proficiency are actually being connected online. We saw during COVID that a ton of students in Hawaii, for example, just kind of disappeared off the map. We've all become familiar with Grace Meng's testimony of folks in her district, you know, by fast food chains trying to connect. So it's not just a issue that affects other people, it really, as our community, At the edge of these issues, having their livelihoods deeply impacted. A lot of Asian businesses were negatively affected during COVID because of the lack of broadband access. We see a lot of neighborhoods that are still affected by historical redlining. So all those issues and more, which Jenny will go into a little bit more, are things that we work on. Thanks so much Emily. I think
0: one of my biggest takeaways from your introduction is that the AAPI community is incredibly diverse and it's really important to consider these potential impacts when we we think about what kind of technology policy we want. Like I think when people think of the AAPI community in the United States, like there's this myth or stereotype of the model minority, right? But in fact, the AAPI community is incredibly diverse. Technology has changed communities in ways that can increase existing income gaps or ways that can reinforce these disparities based on things like language access or digital literacy. So really looking forward to diving more into these topics throughout the podcast as well.
2: Yeah, I can go ahead and introduce myself. So I'm Jenny and I manage our Miss and Disinformation Project Portfolio at Advancing Justice AJC. In terms of how I got involved in this space, it's actually like a very personal story. So my family is originally, I'm I'm Chinese American and a lot of my family in China actually lives in Wuhan. So at the start of the pandemic, I was just very, as many other Asian Americans were disheartened by the state of anti-Asian racism, xenophobia, and just general misinformation about COVID-19. And I think what's really sad is that before all of this happened, right, most Americans and most people in the world probably had never even heard of the city, but then it just became so synonymous with COVID and this disease and this awful thing that happened to the entire world. And so I think that really inspired me to sort of take my current job and pursue advocacy and specifically work on misinformation that's both spreading about our community so what i touched on around the like aggressively anti-china um like covid conspiracy theories and then also the misinformation that spreads within our community and oftentimes how those things go hand in hand which i think we'll dive a little bit further into in a little bit and just on the flip side of that also I've seen how members of my own family have fallen victim to certain misinformation narratives. So even my own parents, who are highly educated, speak English very well, and have professional jobs that require them to speak English, like even for them, um, a lot of their news consumption doesn't come from the more mainstream fact-checked news sources, and they often will will rely on YouTube or WeChat to find out information about their news. don't really consume that much news in English. So, of course, that definitely puts them at a higher risk of consuming information that may not be factual, just from things that they're seeing shared by friends, colleagues, high school classmates, just various members of their community. So, yeah. And then in terms of our work at AajC around mis- and disinformation, the majority of it relates to the tracking, monitoring, analysis of different problematic narratives that we see throughout our community and trying to look for patterns from the different stories that we see across different Asian American diaspora communities and understanding ultimately like who are the bad actors who are spreading this, how does do the stories spread from platform to platform, for example, and then ultimately working with different stakeholders in this issue, right? So whether that be members of the community, uh, tech companies, policymakers, to ultimately try to find different kinds of creative solutions to fight back against this phenomenon. And also, I think just bring a greater awareness of this issue and how it uniquely impacts our communities because of what you touched on, Caitlin. And I think a lot of the stereotypes about our communities and this idea that we're a monolith and that we're high, high, universally high achieving, I think many people don't even realize how this kind of issue may affect our community in, in specific ways. So I think also part of our work is just spreading awareness that this impacts us as well. Absolutely.
0: And maybe we can start right there with the pandemic and anti-Asian bias stoked by misinformation, like you mentioned. I mean, you mentioned that Wuhan, for example, which many Americans had perhaps not been familiar with before the pandemic, kind of exploded overnight in U.S. media coverage. And I think we've seen a lot of buzzwords, right, like Donald Trump and the China virus, as well as other rhetoric and conspiracy theories. And harmful language or misinformation is not new, right? In in a digital era, misinformation or harmful information can just spread much more rapidly and become viral in a way that just we we haven't really seen in the past. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this. What are some of the sources of misinformation that you mentioned, Jenny and Emily? And also, Jenny, you mentioned that technology companies are looking at this issue. What have they done so far? And and have their efforts been successful?
2: Well, I'll mainly first start on the sources, I suppose, and the kinds of different narratives that we see. So as we touched on the beginning. When it comes to disinfo and misinfo that impacts our communities there's sort of two distinct channels so there's mis and disinformation about us when it comes to that the sources and the audience is oftentimes bad actors who are peddling these racist dog whistly type stereotypes about our community age-old tropes about Asian Americans, right, that were dirty and spread disease, that Asians are spies and can't be trusted. Um, And I think the model minority myth and the perpetual foreigner myth definitely play into this, right? Like, as you touched on, Asian Americans are often portrayed like almost homogeneously, but the umbrella term Asian American encompasses so many different ethnicities, languages spoken, countries of oral origin, and we have the largest income disparities of any ethnic group in the United States. So a lot of these kinds of narratives that try to reduce us into just one block are really um, harmful. And I think also, unfortunately, a lot of the times the people who are spreading these types of narratives and rhetoric are powerful politicians or media moguls who use their platforms to spread this kind of hateful information that then unfortunately plays out in the form of real-world violence for members of our community and just overall negative sentiment towards people who look like us. And then the second piece of disinformation that we look at is information that circulates within our communities itself. So oftentimes it's in language, so in Vietnamese on YouTube or in Chinese on WeChat, but also stuff that circulates in English as well. So, it really heavily varies based on the specific communities involved. And oftentimes, they can be, depending on the narrative, traced back to like more quote unquote mainstream English language spaces. So, for example, like when it comes to the election, we often saw that. So, a lot of the rhetoric around voter fraud and election fraud in 2020 and even the 2022 midterms, what we saw there is that majority of the things in narrative we saw circulating among Asian languages were pieces and anecdotes that had been originally reported, quote unquote, in English. And then there would be a video or a truth social post or something that would be translated into from English translated into whatever language or uh, English language video that had subtitles added to it. So there wasn't as much of that community specific targeting when it comes to election fraud and that sort of stuff. But when it comes to like COVID, for example, or anti-Asian hate, uh, immigration, or especially education policies, we'll often see that there is that very specific community-level targeting that really seeks to exploit a lot of the traumas and vulnerabilities that our communities face. So it really, really depends, I think, on the, the type of stories that are circulating. And then I think a big piece of it is that broadly, right, within mis and disinformation, oftentimes it's not stories that are just completely made up. It's narratives that are contain what we would say is like a kernel of truth. So like a very, very small piece of factual information that then is, is distorted and weaponized to be something completely different. So just to give an example, like during the elections, right, if there was one specific polling place in Arizona that had some sort of technical issue using that to spin a bigger narrative of, oh, there's widespread election fraud. So um, we often see that kind of like manipulation tactic when it comes to the sources of this. We often see the presenting of stories or images out of context or taking like cherry picking quotes and things of that nature. So yeah, I think a lot of it really reflects both the diversity of our communities and the, the different kinds of platforms on which it spreads, but also specific narratives themselves kind of reflect how, how ultimately this sorts of information reaches the members of our community. Well, that's so interesting.
0: I'm very curious. I want to touch upon the claims of election fraud that you mentioned, just because I know that we have seen many examples of mis- disinformation in the 2016 and the 2020 elections targeted by race, and especially targeted towards Black Americans in order to discourage people from voting or to spread false narratives about potential election fraud, like you mentioned. And I, I mentioned this because the AAPI community is, I, I believe, one of the fastest growing demographics in the United States, and I believe will become an increasingly important electorate in, I, I guess, especially in upcoming years if demographic trends hold. Have we seen examples of, I, I, I guess, either election misinformation targeting the AAPI community, perhaps in locations that have higher percentages of people in the population that identify as AAPI? Or do we have data on how, for example, the AAPI community might have voted in important elections in recent years?
1: Unfortunately, the answer is yes. There's definitely a lot of targeted messaging. I can share one example that was very salient in the last election, and then maybe Jenny can go into the details of just how many different types of narratives like really microscopically target very specific communities. Um, But one that we, you know, generally we see a lot of in-language content like Jenny mentioned and it's kind of tailored to the experiences of each community. And not just based on a kernel of truth like Jenny mentioned, but also kind of poking and prodding at our real traumas, our hurts, and the oppression, the the pain we've come with from other countries, et cetera. Um, It becomes really personal and becomes about our fears and manipulating those really intense feelings. An example of this is we actually saw a lot of flyers and advertisements on TV go out during the 2022 election, the midterm elections last fall. These were actually sponsored by a group called AFL, which is a group led by Stephen Miller who was a Trump operative and well still is I guess um but these were very they're very emotionally poignant like even when we saw them we were like wow this is really effective because it really touched on the legitimate pain and discrimination that our populations have faced so we are increasingly seeing a lot of the rhetoric we see in the main Political stage about, you know, the weaponization of like things like CRT, equity, diversity, and we see like the counter movement to kind of all of the racial equity work that was being done with Black Lives Matter, and where people are now saying, you know, this is too much, this is unfair, because black and brown populations are being treated unfairly better than white and Asian populations. And it's a lot of this rhetoric that we hear from dis untold, white, more conservative, more backlash type groups. But we're seeing that they're trying to recruit Asian Americans into that, which we've seen throughout history, right? Like white supremacy kind of calls Asian Americans to be like the second in line. And therefore, like, wouldn't you rather be closer to whiteness? But it's this weaponization of our experiences of real discrimination, right? Going back to the World War II and the internment of Japanese Americans or discrimination against Chinese American workers when they first came, where there are a lot of ads for jobs, except for example, that said like Asians need not apply, like you don't belong here, therefore, like this system doesn't serve you, it's not for you, this work isn't for you, etc. And they're kind of using a lot of the diversity and equity programming and policies that now exist to create more racial equity in our country, to kind of flip it against us and say, like, this is to harm you. You don't count as a minority in this country because you're not Black and brown. Biden only cares about Black and brown people, not about Asian Americans. And the way they're doing it is really smart because they're taking op-eds that are written in reputable, journals, newspapers, and portraying them as if they're factual articles. And so this kind of goes to target a different type of population than we're used to seeing, which is educated, English speaking, second generation, maybe American born even. Um, I mean, so it's people with the history, with the knowledge of how the systems work, who maybe understand politics better. And it's really tailored to kind of hit their anger and their hurt and get them to think like, you're right, the system is unfair and it doesn't serve me. And therefore, I need to vote against these things and be actively against these things. I'll let Jenny talk a little bit more in detail.
2: Yeah, I think definitely the flyers were a big thing that we saw in the most recent midterm elections. Just to give an example of more specific, kind of like the community-specific targeting that Emily had also touched on. So one of the most egregious examples that we saw was back during the 2020 election. Actually, there there was a graphic going around on WeChat targeting Chinese Americans, talking about how the National Guard was being leveraged ahead of Election Day and how it was going to be a lot of chaos and violence and unrest at polling locations which of course ultimately scared a lot of these eligible voters away from actually going out and casting their ballots. And we also saw around the 2020 election, a lot of narratives circulating among Korean Americans that there was, there had been widespread election during elections that had happened in South Korea earlier that spring and that how that was a dress rehearsal, quote unquote, for the election fraud that was happening in 2020 in the American elections, that and perpetuate kind of the stolen election narratives perpetuated by a lot of election deniers and bad actors in those spaces. So, definitely have seen examples of very tailored, as mentioned, Emily mentioned, right? Like that put on the very specific commas and home country biases and elements of each specific community that ultimately are voter-suppressive or broadly just discourage political engagement over uh, overall and encourage political apathy. So yeah, unfortunately that's something that we've seen pretty consistently when it comes to Asian Americans and election
0: disinfo. These bad actors and election deniers, you mentioned that these are people who understand AAPI trauma and history and can potentially distort these details to fit their own more harmful narratives. Who, who are these people? Are they members of the AAPI community? Are these more coordinated efforts by bad actors? Or who, who are we? What are the sources of, this, of these bad campaigns?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it really, like I mentioned, it really depends on what. So a lot of it, as we mentioned, is more so what we call like mainstream bad actors. And so it's similar stuff from what you see in like English language spaces. But then there are like really well-funded accounts that just literally go through and translate a lot of that content and really like brings it, makes, makes it quote unquote accessible to members of our community. But for example, like when it comes to COVID misinformation and like anti-vaccine rhetoric, a lot of it stems back to really aggressively like anti-China, anti-CCP, and folks who fall into that camp who leverage their grievances, right, against the Chinese government to then peddle all these sorts of conspiracy theories about how Allegedly, the disease was purposely started by the Chinese government and used as a bioweapon right, to inflict harm against the world, which is, of course, not. There has no, been no evidence of this this kind of thing. But once again, targeting the very specific traumas that many members of the Asian American community might have right around experiences with communism or experiences with that government and using that to manipulate them into believing these certain things about something as important as like taking a life-saving vaccine so yeah i think it really depends i don't know emily if you have anything to add around like the actual actors themselves but yeah
1: i'm just thinking about how we often see legitimate political actors who are actually also behind this right it's not just some like I think Americans, when we talk about mis and disinformation, we're automatically like, "Ooh, some shady building in Russia where a bunch of trolls are just spewing it out." But we have actually seen, like, because it is an effective, you know, process, like process and strategy. We've seen legitimate campaigns, legitimate political actors, PACs engage in this activity as well. So even in local elections, one that comes to mind is in Orange County, which we've tracked and done quite a lot of work on analyzing, but there were two Asian-Americans running in the same district and each party used Anti Asian, very racist, very anti CCP, anti China, making fun of someone's accent, those types of really dirty tactics against each other, even though they were both Asian American candidates. So we saw that as like a kind of microcosm of the bigger system. But like I said before, we also see super PACs led by folks like Stephen Miller. We see folks on Fox News who are, you know, legitimate. Journalists, quote unquote, spewing this stuff, and we see, you know, the president of the United States, like you said already, Caitlin, Trump, at the very top, like spewing misinformation about Chinatown and who is allowed in the country and who isn't, who counts as American and who isn't, and that, and all of that affects people's voting behavior, but also just their perception on the community and of each other when we're in the community. So I think that's been really disturbing for us to see is how much of this is coming from s- supposed legitimate sources, right? Because we often talk about how people are going to sources like this because there aren't legitimate sources of information but even when there are, we see that people are engaging in this time and time again.
0: I think that's a good reminder, I, I-, I-, I agree.
1: I think often
0: when people think of mis- or disinformation, they think about the, the bot farms in Russia, or they think about you know the person sitting in a dark room on a laptop, or they even think of foreign actors like the Chinese government, for example. But like you mentioned, we often see mis- or disinformation or just harmful information come from domestic sources as well. And I think the fact that it is so decentralized makes it a really hard problem to counter, especially since the United States. Has you know such strong legal and cultural standards to protect things like political speech by political candidates or free speech by um, I mean just steady any one of us. I and mean, I want to come back to ways to approach or ways to address this problem of harmful narratives. But first I just wanted to touch upon this word that we've been we've been using a lot, which is trauma. And I think Like you mentioned, mis- and disinformation can be very salient or very powerful when built off of identity-based narratives, especially since people experience trauma in, in so many different ways. And I was wondering if you could just talk about how harmful content or false content can disproportionately affect people based on the intersection of multiple identities. So in addition to race or ethnicity, factors like immigration status or religion or gender or sexual sexual orientation.
2: So I think all of those factors are definitely kind of exacerbate, right, exist existing information harms. So around Specifically, like the online harassment piece. Unfortunately, we've seen within our community itself a lot of gender based harassment targeted at Asian women and specifically Asian men who are kind of perpetuating these attacks. So, unfortunately, there have been many examples of high profile Asian American women who, for reasons such as having a white partner or speaking out in favor of affirmative action or calling out the more systemic issues at play when it comes to anti-Asian hate, this hatred, they often see hatred directed at them, targeted from members of our own community. So that's unfortunately something that we are also grappling with because, as Emily touched on earlier, it kind of flips a lot of the assumptions that we have about misinformation and how people process this. On their head, because a lot of the times we talk about why people are susceptible to misinformation. It's because we say it's because they didn't grow up in the United States and they don't have the context for a lot of this, or they they don't speak English as well, so they don't have access to fact checked resources. But when it comes to this, a lot of the times people who are believing this misinformation and then perpetuating hatred against members of our community, oftentimes they did grow up here and they do speak English, and they might even consider themselves progressive when it comes to other issues but at the same time are then doing enacting these kinds of acts of online hate like it's definitely an interesting and an emerging phenomenon that we're taking a look at and then also when it comes to like other intersectional identities unfortunately we've seen a lot of just anti trans rhetoric play out among a lot of Asian American communities Specifically, I think with more socially conservative first generation immigrants and more religious members of the community, I think there's a lot of just like misinformation about gender identity, and also specifically with how it plays out in public schools and how there's a lot of misinformation about how children are quote unquote being like indoctrinated and a lot of really, really harmful language being used with respect to that. So it's it's definitely something that we see across the community.
1: Yeah. And then I think ultimately, one thing that we are learning over time as we do this work is that it's really not about education or intelligence. I think it really comes down to, you know, what you said, like the trauma and the identity based experiences people bring with them and their lack of trust in institutions and the sources and the, you know, the authorities of the American context, right? Because if you are an immigrant who came over and you were oppressed, you knew the systems didn't serve you, none of the news media was in your language, what reason do you have to trust people who come in and say, this is wrong, like you should listen to what, I don't know, the New York Times says instead, right? And so when they have all these intersectional identities where they might not be English speaking, they might be a new immigrant, they might have grown up in poverty, maybe they grew up during the you know LA uprisings, all of that context like sets them up to be like, I don't trust the authorities. I don't trust these people who are trying to tell me this is the truth because based on my experience, that's not true. And they've never represented me or had any interest in me. And so you can see why they continue to turn to each other and to their communities and the people they trust because we, you know, as institutions that are supposedly the correct ones in the United States, have never cared for Asian Americans, right? So what reason do they have to suddenly turn to us and like believe us as a source of truth now?
0: So how do we change this culture of isolation? How do we change these attitudes and increase trust in institutions or trust in reliable accurate information. I think online content moderation is a part of the problem, but this isn't just a technology problem, it's not just a digital problem, especially given the fact that online harmful narratives build off of these historical th- these historical biases, the, this historical context. So how how do we how do we even start to address the problem? That's
2: the million dollar question, right? So yeah, like you mentioned it definitely is not just a tech issue but just despite often time it being portrayed as such the what Emily mentioned around the election flyers right those were literally literal physical pieces of paper that were sent to people so it's not just online it's not just on the internet we've seen this play out for centuries where bad actors have used these kinds of narratives and weaponized things um so i think Obviously, not to downplay the role that social media po- companies and technology has on this. I think oftentimes it's like an accelerant, right? So it's it just makes it easier to spread information at such a high a high speed. And there's also this the problem of like information overload, where there's just so many different kind of streams of places where you can get your news or get, sources of information that it's overwhelming and then people will only read headlines for example or just not take the time to go and verify if something is true or not so I think ultimately it, it comes down to like understanding the why of why people are believing this falsehoods and like trying to center any sorts of interventions we may have around the community and community-based needs and I think oftentimes we are also guilty of this but like talking about like these susceptibilities and sort of attributing blame to the inv- individuals themselves and saying like, oh, it's because they're not educated or they don't speak English. Right. But it's it's much bigger than that. And I think it's a lot of it is really systemic issues. And I think it, a lot of it will come down to like that before we can like actually go and like ultimately solve a lot of the the roots of this like information epidemic that impacts our community. So, yeah, because it's, we are we we are looking at the specific narratives themselves and like the different kind of conspiracy theories that percolate. But ultimately, there will always be some another iteration of this X, Y, Z theory. Right. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like the broader patterns and themes and root causes that I think we need to be better about understanding and looking at. So in order to ultimately, as you've mentioned, like do something to actually fight <laughs> back against it.
1: Yeah, and I think if we, like Jenny said, it's all of these like structural systemic things that we've seen repeated throughout history, And it's so much more than the tech or whatever's at the top layer, like whatever's sexy right now that's pushing society forward. But if I had a wish list of like, how do we solve these systemic issues, right? And we could just wave a magic wand. I think there are a few things. So number one, I think this is why diversity is so important, right? In every workplace, and every institution, because only when you have the broad experiences of all Americans and all users and all of the people that who are going to be touched by your product or whatever you're putting out into the world, are you going to think about the potential harms and impacts on people before it's out there and you can't take it back, right? Like if we had people at social media companies who understood the very specific experiences of Chinese Americans who immigrated at this time, of refugees communities who came in at this time, and the histories and traumas and lived experiences that they have, maybe we could prevent some of the bad impacts from happening because someone like an engineer would be like, wait, like if my family tried to use this, like they would interpret it this way or the impact would be this. And so I think diversity in every position in every company, et cetera, is really important because we need to have our communities represented if we're going to take care of people and design products and solutions for them. So that's one thing. Um, The second thing I think is really important that we forget is cultural and historical context and understanding. So even with like fact checkers or the news media, if people don't understand the lived experiences of our communities or the histories that we come with and the history of Asian America, they're going to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Like imagine if all the journalists who are first covering COVID and how it was coming from China, the first cases, et cetera, imagine if they had the historical knowledge that during the 1800s, you know, Chinatowns in Hawaii and SF were like fenced off, people were locked in and forced quarantine, Chinatown in Honolulu was literally burned down to the ground because of false allegations about, you know, disease spreading amongst Chinese immigrants. If we had that context, they could have done some much better job of reporting responsibly and preventing harm before it started. So I think that's really important, which goes back to a really big wish list item for I think all of us, which is we need to learn this in our history classes, right? It's our responsibility as people who live in community together to know our histories and each other's histories of how we got here and I think what's really sad is like so many Asian Americans including myself never learned even our own history right like we spend fourth grade in California learning about California history and the railroads and how Chinese Americans came and Japanese people were locked away but that's it we don't really learn anything else and so we don't even know where we come from or like even our motherland histories right so how can we even as people of the members of, of the community do a good job in uh, like fighting this or even preventing it when we don't know the facts ourselves. And then the last thing I'll say is, well actually I'm going to say two more things, one more thing is we need more investment, right, because one of the issues we talked about is the lack of legitimate sources or like help centers or media coverage for our communities right like why is it that all of the investment especially as media companies are becoming more conglomerate like like yeah, monopolies everyone buying each other out like where are the sources where our communities can trust and feel like it's for them it's only going down now like newspapers in language news stations in ethnic media sources are all dwindling and that's a huge issue because people need to have places that they can trust, that they agree are the right sources, that they see someone who's on camera who looks like them. I think that's really necessary. So it's not just how do we fight it, but it's like, how do we create better sources? How do we foster more trust in our systems? And that leads me to the last point, which is, it starts with us, right? It starts with our communities. Like Jenny was saying, like her parents were on WeChat, like my mom is on Missy USA, which is a Korean mom website. And, you know, sometimes it's harmless, but we are the ones who can start these conversations because it's not this like, oh, they don't know how to check their sources or they they aren't educated. It's really, you know, how do you build bridges and Make sure that the people you love and trust in your own lives aren't falling prey to this and have better ways of being able to get legitimate information, right? It's like, how do we care for each other and how do we build trust within our own systems?
0: Oh, Emily, those are all such great points. First of all, I completely agree that it really does start with individuals and communities and reaching out to others within our own communities. I, I remember you mentioned... How growing up in California, AAPI history was not well covered. And that really resonated for me growing up in Massachusetts. I took, I don't even know how many classes on U.S. history where we talked about the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and the U.S. involvement in World War I and World War II. But I felt like, I mean, Asian American history, African American history, LGBTQ plus history was pretty much glazed over in all of my classes. So I definitely agree that there's a role for education and a role for digital literacy when we talk about how do we counter the spread of harmful narratives online. And I also agree that We need this multi-pronged approach, and it definitely starts with broader societal awareness and broader societal change. But I I do think that, like you mentioned, there's a role for increasing representation in all aspects of, of of the process, including within tech companies. I remember back when I was at Brookings, when we were having conversations with technology companies about why more technology companies weren't stepping up and saying we need civil rights language in privacy legislation. Companies were telling us, they were saying, well, we have people who work on privacy and we have people who work on civil rights, but we don't have very many people who understand both. And I definitely think that if we can bridge these gaps, We have more people who understand both technology and civil rights, and who also understand the needs of diverse communities, including the AAPI community, the Black community, the Latino and Latina community. I I mean, this is all incredibly important, and I think areas where we as a society can grow. We've talked about multiple types of harmful narratives, including harmful narratives within the AAPI community, and also harmful narratives about the AAPI community. Do you think it's possible for technology companies and for individuals to create systemic change? Or are we, are we are we just playing whack-a-mole at the moment,
1: trying to address like specific harmful narratives as they come? I can start to talk about it, but Jenny can, I'm sure, expand and build on whatever I try to say. I think it is still for the most part, unfortunately, a -a whack-a-mole strategy. And I think, you know, to give the tech companies a little bit more credit, like we keep saying on this podcast, like, it's not a new problem and it's not a tech problem, right? We're asking them to solve this age old problem of, you know, propaganda has existed since the beginning of time. I'm sure cavemen were giving each other propaganda to push their own agendas forward, et cetera. We see it time and time again throughout history. And so I think, Sometimes it can be unfair to say, hey, tech companies, this is your fault and you need to fix it, especially because we as users on these platforms are the ones who are pushing this. Right. And so while there's responsibility with the way they've accelerated it, I think it's a bigger problem, like we've talked about. That said, I think there are a few things that we see going on now that we hope will change. So one of the reasons we are engaging in this project of tracking and analyzing specific narratives that pop up again and again is because we want to engage with tech companies to educate them on issues or narratives that they might not be aware of because they are so embedded within Asian American culture and context, right? Um, So for example, if we see, you know, a narrative coming out of the Vietnamese American community in language that we're seeing is a violation of community standards or practices as listed by their own websites and their own policies, we want to be able to flag things like that for them. But even that is still a -a whack-a-mole strategy, right? So what we'd like to see is kind of going back to my former point about the importance of diversity and hiring people from different backgrounds. We wanna make sure that the fact checkers themselves, the people who build these policies at social media companies don't need us to constantly give them a list of emerging issues because they themselves are already embedded in the community, understand the history and the experiences, and so they can directly bring that and embed that within these systems before they even become a problem. I think the other nuance that we constantly have to bring up time and time again that we hope we will see a change in is the conflation of like asians in asia and asian americans so sometimes with these fact checkers with the content moderators they are doing a good job like splitting people off by language ability and so let's say in south korea let's say there is a korean office where All the Korean translators and fact checkers sit in Korea, in South Korea, wherever, and they're fact checking on behalf of a social media company. But what happens often with many companies is any content, including that from international sources, such as like, let's say, Korean Americans, Koreans in Europe, etc. All of that language content is being passed to translators and monitors in the South Korea office, which means that they might be able to understand the Korean context and be applying the rules according to their understanding. But if they don't understand American politics, American history, the lived experiences of immigrants in America, which is very, very different from those who are still living in South Korea, then they're not going to catch or understand even the content that's coming through. So it's an imperfect solution. And I think that all, again, relates back to the importance of diversity, right, and understanding users, understanding the communities you serve, because if one person who was Korean American sat in one of these offices, they would be able to be like, wait, like, this is completely different from like the experience of my parents who live in the United States. Um, so that's one area that we would really like to see improvement on. But ultimately, it goes back to education and really understanding the communities that you're serving before you try to impose solutions.
2: I also wonder,
0: so we've talked about the role of communities, the role of individuals, and the role of technology companies. But CSAS is a public policy think tank. So, in true think tank fashion, <laughs> I also wanted to ask if there is a role for governments in addressing this issue. And I do understand that, I mean, this is tough, right? Because government officials and politicians are sometimes the problem, too. <laughs>
1: I can start a little bit. So, you know, we've been a part of a few congressional hearings throughout the years about, you know, disinformation, about platforms and accountability. And I think it's great that we're talking about it finally, right? When we were invited to speak specifically about API missing disinformation, we're like, this is great that people even recognize that this is a specific problem that needs to be treated differently and has its own nuances. That said, I think we can all see from, even if you've just watched one congressional hearing on tech, you see that it's a lot about, you know, getting that soundbite to show that you're really tough on tech. We don't see a lot of informed, you know, meaningful questions that are actually trying to get to a solution. So for example, Jenny and I just recently wrote a blog post about the TikTok hearings. And Caitlin, I know you've written a lot about (laughs) TikTok as well, but, you know, that was such an opportunity to talk about legitimate concerns that affect all American users, right? So things like privacy, things like, how is our data stored? Like, what do companies know about us? Where is it being transferred? What is it being used for? These are all important questions that we need to ask all the social media companies, not just TikTok. But instead, we saw that it became this really, really racist, xenophobic, you know, just and Thai China, grandizing, that didn't really lead to any meaningful discussion or any attempt to build solutions. And so I think we need to move to a state where our lawmakers actually understand the real issues at play and the levers that tech companies do and do not have at their disposal and like a good faith effort to work with tech companies right because the tech companies are also in the situation where they're being swung back and forth depending on who's in office right and which side is winning at the moment so even with our tech partners they might say like this is great like we want to engage in this project with you or this idea with you but the political pressures they face are are real and they might say like well we think in the election like this side's going to win which means everything we did with you like they might prohibit it right like we might be fined for it and so I think our congress our lawmakers have a really big responsibility to the American people to learn more and really engage in a meaningful process and they and, and, and I will say, like, one of the places that gives me hope is that we're seeing a ton of really great legislation come from local municipalities, state governments, where they are trying to engage in a meaningful way, you know, thinking about things like biometric data, how do we set higher standards for that collection, because it is more sensitive, right, California's privacy legislation that is giving users more power to to decide what is done with their data etc so I think those are good models but I think you know we can all kind of see the circus that is Congress right now and it's not just tech policy right it's like a lot of our policies that we're not really seeing movement on but there is good good work still being done at the more local levels which I think are a good example of how we at the national level can move forward. I I
0: agree. Absolutely. We have seen that in Congress, it's much easier for members of Congress to come up and act tough on China or act tough on big tech. It's it's a lot harder to create nuanced, Mm. thoughtful legislation that will actually benefit people. And we definitely have seen a lot of good things come from the states, whether progress on biometric privacy or progress on facial recognition protections or regulations on data brokers. I, I do wonder, though, especially as America becomes more polarized, if we'll see a, like I guess like a split between which states are passing helpful legislation and which are not. I guess I'm thinking of Florida where Ron DeSantis recently signed a law that would prevent Chinese citizens from owning land. And of course this was widely criticized and it potentially even unconstitutional under Florida law. So is there anything else that you want to cover that we didn't get to today?
1: I guess the one thing on the legislation I would add is you know as much as we like to poo-poo on Congress I also understand like why they can't get anything done, because both sides currently agree that tech companies need reformation, but especially, you know, on like the Section 230 debate, we see that one side is like, hey, we need to regulate more. We need to take down more harmful content. Like, we need to add civil rights language to these community guidelines. And the other side, like you said, like Florida, Texas, they've been introducing legislation which goes the opposite which way, which is like, hey, social media companies, you can't take anything down because that's a violation of our free speech. And so you can see how folks are in this weird position where, you know, as tech companies who are trying, even if they were trying to do the right thing, right? Like, they're being pushed on both sides. So I think that's one of the reasons we're not seeing movement. And like you said, is what's leading to the piecemeal stateside legislation being split. And I do think that's going to be, unfortunately, something that we see more and more of.
2: Yeah. The one thing that I might add to the congressional oversight piece, I think, is going back to the technology companies and the social media platforms themselves, Oftentimes when it comes to their recommendation algorithms and their content moderation processes, there's this sort of black box that we don't really know what actually goes on, right? Like how YouTube's video recommendation algorithm works or how Facebook is actually how the actual content moderation process works behind the scenes. So I think at the more congressional level, there could be just like greater oversight and greater transparency into that sort of like under the hood look, or propelling the research, or the companies themselves, who of course have all of the access to this information, right? And oftentimes use like this justification of th- these sorts of things being secret sauce or very important to like their like bottom line, keeping this like proprietary. If that's the case, then if they they have all the information, they should be the ones who are proactively doing this research themselves. And going back to what Emily has said around like diversity, like if. They have more folks on their side who can do that research. Like I think that would be ultimately very beneficial because it also really isn't fair, I think, to put the onus on civil society to do this work for them if it's their systems that are ultimately failing and not creating the most beneficial or equitable platforms for people who don't speak English.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Jenny and Emily. That's a great note to end on. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all of your work on this issue. I highly encourage all of our listeners to check out the Asian Americans Advancing Justice AAJC website. There are so many helpful resources and publications for everybody. And I know that I look forward to continuing to follow your work on this issue. So thank you so
1: much again. Thank you so much, Caitlin. And thank you for all the work you're doing for our communities too.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.